Amen. And uh, turn to Romans 7, because that's the passage that I'm talking about. And uh, last week we finished Romans 6 by dealing with the last 10 verses. And really, Romans 6, 7, and 8 go together as a unit. Uh, they actually are talking about the same thing. Paul's expanding upon the same idea. We could even say it goes back into chapter 5, because it does, once he starts talking about Adam and Eve and sin and uh, death spreading to all the world. And then, of course, the second man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so really, it even goes back into chapter 5. But 6 through 8 primarily is what I'm talking about right now are a unit that go together. Uh, we studied baptism in the very first verses of chapter 6. And um, uh, as we do that, we were very careful to distinguish between spiritual baptism and uh, the importance, yet um, not, the, not the reality, but the sign of a Christian baptism. It is a means of grace, so it builds us up in the most holy faith. But it's a great heresy to think that you cannot be saved without um, water baptism, and a great heresy to think that you are saved by water baptism. Water baptism is for the Christian. And then second of all, we saw that both Christian and non-Christian alike are walking dead men. And it's pretty obvious, I think, to most of us how the lost man is dead. He's dead unto God. He's dead unto righteousness. But Christians are walking dead men too. We're alive to God, and we're alive to righteousness, but we're dead to sin. And that's what that was really all about there. We're going to elaborate on that a little bit more today, except instead of being dead to sin, we're going to see that we're dead to the law. Okay, and what that means. Third of all, we explored the fact that Christians do not have two masters. And I put it on your outline there. Uh, no man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You could actually, uh, that, and that God and the love of money, but you could also talk about you cannot serve God and Satan. You cannot serve God and yourself. You cannot say, you know, these things. Because anything antithetical that we're serving instead of God, it would just plain be wrong. We have one master. When we're lost, our master is sin and Satan. And uh, now that we're saved, our master is the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. The Christian doesn't have two masters, one. And then I'll read these verses because they, they kind of lead up to where we're going today. Who you obey shows who your master is. If the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, who you obey shows who your master is. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves, whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So what's the exhortation that we could go on from there? Well, serve God as fervently as you once served sin. Serve your new master as heartily as you served the old one. Serve your new master just as willingly as you served the old one. And you will find that as you serve your new master, there'll be great joy within, whereas the old master just beat you and hated you, and uh, destroyed you, promised so many good things, and delivered none of them. Everything was delivered like a serpent's bite. And that's the way it is for the lost man. Whatever pleasures he seeks are temporary at best, and almost always fraught with uh, sorrow and pain along with it. Well, to the Christian, he's a new man, new master, there's new fruit from his life. All things are new. Formerly bondage, now freedom. Formerly slaves of sin, now slaves of God. Formerly vice, now holiness. Formerly shame, now peace of mind. Formerly wages. Wages of sin is death. Formerly wages, now a free gift. But the free gift is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Formerly death, 
now everlasting life. Well, that brings us to chapter 7. So in chapter 7, we're, we're going to deal with the, the chapter as a whole to a point, but we can't deal uh, properly with the entire chapter as a whole. So we're focusing in on the analogy that's at the head of this chapter, but I'm not going to just leave it there because I'm going to make assertions and read some verses that come later that we will take the time to exposit. But um, let's go ahead and look at the, the marriage analysis. And it has to do with the law, and it has to do with the lost, and it has to do with the Christian. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she is married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, um, that's quite an analogy there. Six verses of the Word of God given to this particular analogy. But it's the heading of the chapter, and it makes sense as we go through the chapter. So we're going to be talking about the analogy quite a bit today. Paul uses the analogy of marriage for us to understand when we were under the law and why we're not under the law now. And if we believe we're still bound to the law, we don't understand the analogy. An analogy is a logical connection between things. So we're not under the law. But that doesn't mean the law is bad. It doesn't mean we shouldn't obey the law. Okay, so I'm not double talking here. I'm going to try to prove these things as we go. The lost man and the law. Okay, oh by the way, um, there was um, something I, I found on Facebook. Every once in a while, something good appears on Facebook. <laughs> Amazingly. <laughs> but this was a good one. I think I got it from you, Pat, but I'm not sure. Sin makes you feel free when you're actually a slave. Grace calls you to be a slave in order to set you free. Now, that's pretty good. That's from Paul Tripp, who is Ted Tripp's brother and both are our doctors and both are, are very fine Christian preachers of the gospel and counselors. Sin makes you feel free when you're actually a slave. Grace calls you to be a slave in order to set you free. Okay, Paul Tripp. Very good. Well, the lost man and the law, verses 1 through 3. I won't read them again, but you just look at those as you're looking in your Bible, verses 1 through 3. His audience was not ignorant of the law. They were students of the law, just as we need to be. When we were lost, we needed to understand that we're sinners. We needed the law to see our sin, so we'll see our need of Christ. Now, there's conflicting views of this chapter I should bring up. I talked about controversy before. And uh, let me just touch on that controversy right now. There are some that will tell you that Romans 7 is not the Christian experience. They'll tell you that this is Paul talking about himself as a lost man. So as a lost person, he's talking about himself, um, but um, this has nothing to do with the Christian. It's all about the lost. And it's kind of like his testimony. And I don't believe that's true. I believe that's incorrect, absolutely incorrect. Uh, they, they would have to say the Christian doesn't have a battle anymore. They think that Paul is talking only of his pre-converted state. But as I read Romans 7, I know it describes me. Okay. And I know the battle that still remains and is found in Romans 7. And I know it doctrinally. I know it personally. And we'll go through it exegetically. And so, you know, I believe 
that this is the Christian experience. In fact, we're gonna flash ahead a bit. Go to Romans 7.14. We'll, we'll do an exposition of these passages next week or the week following, depends. But Romans 7.14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not, what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Uh, can a lost person say that? You know, For I know that in me, that's in my flesh, Nothing good dwells. A lost person could say that. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Does that sound like a, a lost person? You know? Now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's an odd thing for a lost person to say, that uh, really, it's not them. You know, I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And then get this one for the lost person. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. I, I don't think <laughs> that happens. You know, the, the carnal mind is enmity against God. You know, we, we could go to total depravity and say, well, this doesn't line up with total depravity. It may line up with what a lot of people believe. They don't believe in total depravity, but it doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture. If, to say this is a lost man that delights in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And if we didn't convince you with uh, what we read so far, I think verse 25 ought to, ought to seal it for good. So not to be overly critical, uh, I know why this happens, and I know some of the problems that do exist, and we'll address them as we go when we get to that part of the scripture. But suffice it to say, I believe it comes from an over-realized eschatology of those that uh, believe that we're already perfect. And so how could this possibly apply to Christians? You know, But they were talking about not heaven. We're talking about now, okay? Now instead of heaven. And that makes all the difference in the world. Okay, so with that being said and done, I think um, most of you as Christians would agree that uh, what we just read is so much of what you experience, uh, so much of what you wish you didn't experience, so much of what you wish that you could do better and desire to do better, and yet you find yourself sometimes falling into the same old stuff over and over again, going to the Lord and uh, asking Him for repentance and, and for His help and for His strength. You know, This is the Christian experience. And don't expect to escape it in this world. You know, it's, it's just part of what we're going to go through. We're not perfect yet in the body of this flesh. You know, and, and you can use flesh in that way two different ways. Flesh and bone, flesh and blood, or flesh as a principle. And so we'll deal with that as we go. It's a practical chapter. It's a blessed chapter. This chapter will help us to understand ourselves. This chapter will keep us from discouragement if we apply it properly. And this chapter describes how the Christian deals with what we call and what the Puritans called and what great theologians of the past have called remaining sin. Remaining sin in the heart and life of a Christian. Now one of the things we need to do is understand law as it's used in this passage, because it is being used differently in different verses. In fact, there's basically three, three different ways the law is used here in Romans chapter 7. We need to discern that. Uh, first of all, there is the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. That's what we usually think of, and, and rightly so, although we do know that there's more, than, more to law than that. But the Ten Commandments, the things that are written on 
even lost men's hearts, depraved men's hearts, and they try to, to, to repress it and hold it down. We find the moral law uh, in a number of times, but let me just show you a couple so you get an idea here. Verse 1, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law is dominion over a man as long as he lives. And then verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. So there's two examples of, of how the moral law is used in this passage. But uh, there's also a civil use of the law. Now, by civil use of the law, which is talking about uh, what we could talk about um, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the fact that the law has, you know, there's three uh, laws, the, the, the moral, and there's the civil, and uh, then there's the ceremonial. Civil law is found in, in verse number two. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. You could argue, well, um, yeah, that's also in the Ten Commandments too, is it not? Thou shalt not commit adultery. It is. It is, yeah. And, and the Ten Commandments are always, usually civil law or ceremonial law will find some place in the Ten Commandments. But basically we're talking about a civil law here. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law or her husband, uh, of her husband. So then it's while her husband lives, she marries another, then she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she's married another man. Now, I thought about getting into a, a a lengthier discussion of that and uh, actually have a sermon half written about that but decided not to do it uh, at this particular time. Uh, I would just hope that um, uh, divorce is not named amongst us but sometimes it is and many of you have been divorced I understand that and um, our prayers are with you and um, I, I didn't want to just uh, preach on that particular subject. There's other scriptures that we would go to to preach on that particular subject, I believe, especially like in Matthew, for instance. But uh, not to, to beat you down if you've been divorced. Uh, all manner of sin is, can be forgiven, and God often just uh, turns uh, the very worst things into good things. And so let's remember that. But for those of you that are divorced, I hope that you would always exhort those that are single that a divorce is always painful. It's always painful. At best, at least it's painful and costly and hard. You know, and relationships are broken that are not meant to be broken. But God can bandage those things up and heal and restore. And we thank the Lord that he can do that by his grace, whether you remarry or whether you remain single uh, afterwards you know, according to God's grace. So I decided not to preach on that. But the principle is here, you know, as a regular principle, bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But is she bound to him once he dies? Are you married for time and eternity? Um, we, there are people that believe that. They believe it's time and eternity. And, um, and ladies, if you're in the Mormon church, uh, you better be really nice to your husband because uh, if you want to be resurrected, he has to lift the cloth off your face at the end of days. And uh, Okay, well, we can see how error becomes horrendous error in so many ways. So, no, no. The lost man is absolutely under the law He's married to the law, and he's condemned by the law. And I put that scripture in the book of Revelation for you here. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, that was written in the books, according to what they had done. You want to be judged by the law? Well, if you don't come to Christ, you will be. You'll be judged by the law, and guess what? Absolutely guilty. Absolutely guilty. In fact, guilty every day. You know, it's not just like, oh, I committed one sin. No, I'm, I'm guilty. You're born in sin, and then 
you're guilty by thing after thing after thing. And believe me, if all of us were judged by any, if any of us were judged uh, by the book and the, what we had done, pretty thick book, pretty thick book. Be glad, Christian friend, that book has nothing to do with you. You'll never be judged by the book of the law. The loss, the book, look at the passage again. I put it on your outline so you didn't have to turn there. The books were opened. Two books, at least, are, are mentioned. The Book of Life. The lost are not found there. Their names are not there. But they have their name in the Book of Deeds and are judged according to what they have done. Aren't you glad, Christian friend? that your name's in the book of life and there's no book that's going to be opened about your deeds. That's God's good grace. You know. Well, what possible standard could the, judge, the dead be judged by except the book of the law? And not the civil law, the ceremonial law, the, the law of God, the moral law as codified in the Ten Commandments. And there's only one way to be free from the law. And that brings us to Paul's analogy. In our lost condition, we were under law. The law was over us, and we were bound to the law as a woman is bound to her husband. In our lost state, we were married to the law. It's the analogy. It's what it says. The Christian is free from the law. The husband, the law dies, and the wife is free to remarry. It's similar to Paul's extended illustration of being a slave. Remember that one? Mentioned it more than once. Maybe I'll mention it again. I don't know. But it's a great illustration in Romans 6 about the fact that uh, we, we were slaves under sin. We were slaves to sin itself. And how could we be rescued? How could that sin be paid for? And it was paid for by the good master as he put us to death, Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We were put to death in Christ and with Christ. Christ, of course, paid for all of those sins. And now we're dead to sin, but we're not left there. We're raised to new life in Christ. And now we have a new master, okay? And so sin is not our master. Christ is our master. And God has raised us up with him. So this is how it's done. For verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. And, and then it goes on. But we already exposited those verses. But that's the long um, application, analogy, if you will, or illustration that Paul uses of slavery, now he's using a very similar illustration about the law, only he uses the husband-wife analogy. The husband has died, the wife is free to be married to another, and uh, of course, who is that another that we're free to be married to? Well, the law has died to us, and so we're free to be married to Christ. We're in Christ, and we become part of the bride of Christ. The analogy is a wonderful analogy. It's a perfect analogy. You know, of course, it's an inspired analogy. You know, I always say analogies break down or illustrations break down. But biblical illustrations used properly, well, they don't break down because they come from the perfect one himself. So, Christ took the penalty due to breaking the law. The marriage being between the condemning law and myself is gone. There wasn't a divorce. There was a death. The marriage bonds were broken and there was total freedom to marry another. Death dissolves all legal marriage obligations. And we should never criticize people. You know, sometimes it really becomes a hard thing, practically. That can be hard for, for everybody. And, uh, but um, no, at death, you're free to marry another. I told my wife she can't. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Okay, that was a joke. 
<laughs> one person got it. No, I didn't tell my wife she can't. No, of course she could. Of course she could. You know, and uh, that's the way it is. Now, only in the Lord, that's what the Bible tells us. Free Christian friend. Free to marry another, but only in the Lord. Okay, so that's important to remember. But, you know, so the Christian is free from the law because the law died to us. Verse 4 tells us that we're free in Christ to live and bear good fruit. Verse 4, therefore my brethren, well there we go, knowing who he's speaking to in the context, and God's so gracious he tells us, he tells us who he's talking to. Therefore my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So he goes from the analogy to an application of the analogy. Bearing fruit. But let's ask the question, what does dead to the law mean? Turn, keep your finger here, but turn to Galatians chapter 3. I've been reading Galatians in my devotions, just finished it this morning, along with other passages that we read, or that I read. But, um, you know, Galatians 3 talks about the same thing. I was surprised, and uh, it's wonderful how the Word of God integrates itself. I mean, I've known this, I've read this uh, dozens and dozens of times, but um, how the book of Galatians integrates itself so well with Romans chapter 7. I mean, it's, it's worth reading Galatians, the book of Galatians, in the context of Romans chapter 7. It's all over the place, you know, because the Galatians were falling into the heresy that they were under the law again. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified. And by the way, that's not, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments there. Now we're talking about the whole ballgame, all wrapped up together. Because the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to be circumcised. They'd come to faith in Christ, and now the Judaizers are saying, ah, ah, but not really. Not really yet, because you haven't been circumcised. You need to be circumcised, Gentiles. You've got to do that. You know, you can't come to Christ until you're circumcised. So you need to be circumcised, and that's what you can do. And, of course, taking the, the ceremonial law and um, defiling them with it. And Paul has very bad things to say about those guys, by the way. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith, quoted from the Old Testament. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. And then here's verse 13. You know, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Was Christ hanged on a tree? Yeah, I wouldn't hang on a tree in the aspect of, of what uh, the Old Testament immediate context is. But uh, in the prophetic eye of God, you know, the cross wasn't just a hanging. The cross was, well, it was a hanging. Sorry, I shouldn't have put it that way. It wasn't, though, the idea of, of kill somebody and then hang them from a tree. That was done often in the earliest days of the Old Testament, even in the time of King David. That was still being done. They would kill the person and then hang them up for all to see. And uh, that was a curse. That was a curse to the land to do that, you know. Um, and it was a curse of the land, and it was a curse of the land to not do it properly, but it was a curse to the person that was hanged. Okay, so Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then parenthesis, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, going back to the Old Testament, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So there's something that's very important. The other thing about the book of Galatians is very important. Uh, no book makes it more clear that Jew and Gentile are brought together in Christ uh, to be brothers and sisters in the Lord 
for all eternity, saving, uh, believing Jews, not unbelieving Jews, believing Jews and believing Gentiles brought together by the Lord. Very, very clear in the book of Galatians. But Christ became the curse. So there is no curse of the law for us. The law carries a curse for all who break it. No one can be justified by the law. Break one law, you're guilty of all. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross. By faith we receive him and his payment for us. Uh, the curse no longer applies because he took that curse. He took that curse for every single elect person. Took that curse so that God can say, not guilty, justified, justified by faith, faith in Christ. Now we once lived under the law. Look at verse 5, Romans 7, back to Romans 7. We once lived under the law. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And before conversion, before someone comes to Christ, you have no idea who the elect are. You have no idea. That's why you preach the gospel to every creature. Because you don't know who the elect are. You know? And, and you and I didn't look real elect before we were Christians, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. You know? We don't know who they are. You know? But God knows. And God will do whatever it takes to bring his elect to himself. And he does whatever it takes to bring the elect to himself. No matter how um, improbable it may seem. There are others, and I've met people like this, by the way. Uh, I, I, when we were bowling, you know, my, my wife and I used to bowl every Friday, you know, and so uh, we'd try to be a witness uh, as we were bowling to the other members of the teams and everything like that, which means that you better not get too upset when you, you throw a split or miss a spare, you know. So you try to be a witness and, and also have a fun and have a good time. And, and I think a lot of good was done. But there was one family that I suspected were Christians. I suspect they just seemed like Christians. They acted kind of like Christians. And, and in many ways, it's just a pleasant family to be around. And um, I got to know them better. And they were Presbyterians, lost Presbyterians, <laughs> in a very liberal very liberal setting of church that they never attended, you know. So there you go, you know. Um, United Presbyterians and uh, in name only, you know. And I did a wedding for them. I did a wedding for them because, you know, they, they were friends and we appreciated them and, and loved them. And, and uh, I, I perceived that uh, both the, the woman and the man were lost. And lost people could get married. You know, they're allowed to get married. So, so I did a wedding for them. And, and then I didn't think that they were Christians anymore <laughs> after the wedding. That's, that's another story. Okay, anyway, there's people you look at. And sometimes you may think that they're Christian just by the way they look or by the way they act. But you can't see their heart. So you don't really know. And there's others that you probably wouldn't suspect them being a Christian by the way they look, hopefully not by the way they act. We can't judge that way. We can't, you know. And, and so we just have to be very, very careful. And uh, it's by the profession and by the life that we know. So verse 5 says what we were, verse 6, but now. Oh, okay. So now we know that we're going to talk a little bit different subject. So we're talking about when we were in the flesh. Okay. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Okay. There's a new motivation. Did the law change? No. If we're talking about Ten Commandments, the law, well... It maybe it didn't really change because the heart of the fourth commandment always was to serve the Lord and honor and worship him and give him one day in seven. And we still have that privilege. You know, Sunday uh, would, should be a day of rest, spiritual rest, 
being able to put aside work, be able to come together with the people of God, spend time together. I, I know it's not always possible in our modern society. Uh, it uh, become difficult. You could have a what would be a lower on the food chain job, and it's more likely you're going to be working on Sunday because of that. It's just sad, but that's what's happened in today's world. And um, Sunday is meant to be a day of rest. It's meant to be a day of worship. Meant to be a day of reflection. Meant to be a day of good deeds. Meant to be a day of mercy. You know, meant to be just all these things, all these privileges that we have. You know, a day of rest. Well, we can serve the Lord because the law doesn't hang over us as a curse. And our heart has been changed by regeneration. And so our desires have been changed because of regeneration. And then Paul's going to go on to talk about, but we're still fighting a battle. We're still fighting the battle. That's what the rest of the chapter is about. But now our motivation is different. Our heart is different. We should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You know, when you deal in the oldness of the letter, usually if you're really devout in that, you think that you're okay. The Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, was not convicted by the law. If you ask the Apostle Paul, as a Pharisee, before he was converted, uh, how is your standing with God? I think it's pretty good. I'm zealous, man. I'm zealous. I kill Christians, you know. I'm zealous for God. I'll do whatever it takes to serve God. You know, I obey the Ten Commandments. Remember the, the, the rich young ruler that came to Christ. He is a grand example. The reason that example is there is for us, actually. The Bible actually says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And that becomes a point of controversy. And I don't think it needs to be a point of controversy. I, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but I know it could mean two things. Uh, here was a, a Jewish man, one of Jesus Christ's kinsmen in the flesh. Shouldn't hate him. Say, ah, oh, I hate that guy, man. You know? <laughs> and there's different levels of love, too. And some say, well, he had to be elect, or it couldn't say that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Well, I think it's likely that he was elected, probably did come to faith later, but we are going to have a hard time proving that from the scriptures. It wasn't necessary to prove that from the scriptures, you know. And so Jesus, of course, friend of sinners and, and loved and, and um, talked, to, talked to them. Well, with all that being said and true, you know, our heart has been changed. The rich young ruler went to Christ, dared to look him right in the face and say, what do I do for eternal life? And Christ says, well, you know the law. Keep the law. And then he started naming some of the things. And the man wasn't a liar. He, with all, you know, with a lie, there needs to usually be some kind of, of um, purpose behind it. I think he's very sincere. He said, I've kept all these things from my youth up. But what do I still lack? That's a hopeful thing when someone might say that. You know, I've kept it all. What do I lack? Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor, come and follow me. And he went away sorrowful because he was rich. And Jesus used that as the occasion to say how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven because of all the wealth that he has and the things that he's afraid he may have to give up. Okay? All these motivations that are wrong motivations. The man went away sorrowful. He didn't say, oh, okay, I'll do that. And in all likelihood, he wouldn't have had to have done that, really. But Christ was showing him the sin of his own heart. He was a covetous man and didn't even know it. Presented with a true choice. Have your riches or have me. He chose his riches, at least temporarily, if not permanently, you know. So we'll, we'll see if we see the rich man in heaven, you know. And I'm going to give you, I, I kind of think so, but I can't prove so. <laughs> okay, we'll put it that way. Later on, you know, 
later on, Pastor Ken was even saying this morning, you usually don't come to Christ the first time you hear the gospel. You usually don't. We're usually Christ rejectors, maybe for a while, maybe for even an extended period of time. We're Christ rejectors until the Holy Spirit comes in regenerating power and changes our heart, you know. Now, our heart's been changed, and say, well, then you know, the sermon's over, right? And it's not, okay, <laughs> it's not over. Let me apply some things here, because I think this is important. A summary of the analogy, how the Lord uses the law, and then next week we'll go into the rest of the chapter here. But here's a summary of the analogy. Number one, and you can write these on the back of your outline if you wanna have them, um, because I didn't put them on the back of the outline. I didn't wanna do a spoiler alert here. So there you go. The summary of the analogy. Number one, the Lord uses the law to convict the lost of sin. Okay, the Lord uses the law to convict the lost of sin. And in the Christian, the realization of our sinfulness causes us to flee again to Christ and beg for mercy. But uh, for the lost, it's that realization, that first realization, that then they come to Christ and are born again. And there's an old saying, said it many times, but because I, I believe it's true, the truth will set you free, but it'll make you miserable first. <laughs> You're gonna find your miserable condition and flee to Christ. Number two, the lost may try to silence the voice of conscience. Conscience rightly used bases itself off the law that law that's kind of within us in, in seed form, becomes the voice of conscience in the lost. But you can sear your conscience so badly you don't have a conscience anymore. You know, you can be a psychopath. Most people are not psychopaths, but most people are very much actively busy of silencing the voice of conscience. And the world is more than happy to let you do that. Peer pressure will help you to do that. A school, if you're children and you're in school, um, then your peers will help you that way, or even your adult peers will help you that way. The media will certainly help you that way. Uh, the workplace will help you silence the voice of conscience. And the TV, movies, music, all these things work themselves together. Things that are actually good also can work themselves together to try to ease the voice of conscience. The world redefines sin. This is under the lost may try to silence the voice of conscience. The world redefines sin and try to silence in your conscience. You know, in the, in the 60s, and I lived through this, I'm old enough to have lived through this, a few of you are, uh, the sexual revolution. It was really quite an amazing thing. It's glorified nowadays, uh, but it's not a good thing, my friends. It was not a good thing, okay? We're no longer under the bondage of uptight rules, you know. We're free to live in love, the summer of love, and, and what happened. You know, I want you to, to think about today. Where we are today compared to where we were then. And the fruit is ugly. Sin's gotten worse and worse. The goals of really silencing the conscience have been done. Now it's, it's fine to live together before marriage. I mean, people really don't think that's a sin. Most people don't. I don't have a survey in front of me telling me that, but I know it's true. They don't think it's a sin. In fact, it's often encouraged. I've even known Christian parents encouraging, not in the church here, thankfully, but I've known Christian parents that have encouraged their children to live together before they get married so they'll find out if it's going to really work or not. After all, you don't want to get divorced, do you? Well, okay, you know. Silencing the voice of conscience. And the fruit has continued beyond man and woman. We've got to the point now that uh, you, you can't be tolerant of the homosexual lifestyle. You can't be tolerant of it. You have to agree with it. And you have to say that it's good. In all of its perversion, you have to say it's good. It's, it's not just, oh, well, tolerate it. I know you don't like it, but you, no. No, tolerance has led to acceptance. And acceptance isn't good enough for lawbreakers. 
We now have to commend them and celebrate them and say this is good and right, and if you don't, you're a bigot. That's where we've gone. And where does this stop? Does it stop at teaching high schoolers about deviancy and, and lauding its virtues? We've seen it creep down into the youngest grades, where there are some, and thankfully I don't think this is widely accepted yet by most parents, but it's where it'll keep on going if it doesn't stop, where little boys and little girls have to try to figure out if they really are a boy or they really are a girl. Could it get worse than that? Well, it could even get worse than that, but I'm not going to speak it. I'm not going to talk about it. We've just seen what's happening, the downward spiral. May God break that downward spiral. Lost men try to silence the voice of conscience in their own heart, but that's not good enough. They want to silence it in every way and in everyone. Third of all, and I'm almost done, the lost may decide to try and find a remedy on his own. Not everybody goes into the, the, the great depths of depravity, you know. Uh, many uh, try to, to find um, the answer to silence their conscience uh, through spirituality. Don't you hear that one a lot? You know, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know, that, that's really becoming very popular in our day and age today. It eases the conscience. And uh, just go into your local Barnes and Noble bookstore right down the road uh, and look at the spirituality section. We've got a whole section of self-help books that will tell you how you can be spiritual without being religious. Okay. The Bible won't be one of those books in that section, by the way. Okay. Or you may try to find it in an established religion. Maybe he was raised Catholic, he goes back to the Catholic Church. You know, he or she. Um, maybe they, uh, the Mormons appeal to their morality. They become Mormons, you know. Uh, we had a Jehovah Witness lady come to our door, you know, and uh, didn't really talk to her because she was only looking for Spanish-speaking people and uh, met my wife, and my wife doesn't speak a whole lot of Spanish, like nada, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, she didn't stay, but uh, you just go, well, this, this lady's out there on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning knocking on doors and trying to meet people and, and convince them that her religion is correct. Uh, that's a lot of zeal. Paul had a lot of zeal, too, when he was going about arresting Christians. You know, but that's a lot of zeal. It's really, the voice of conscience being stifled by what I do. Just an example of that. Others find ways to cope with their sin. They become more moral. They turn over a new leaf. And then they feel good about themselves. Um, we can call our sin an addiction, overcome it, and now believe our problems are solved. And don't get me wrong. When somebody overcomes an addiction, we're very thankful for that. That's a good thing, you know. But it doesn't deal with the root problem if they don't come to Christ. Conquering addiction alone is not salvation. Lost men... Many are capable of conquering addictions, you know. Others immerse themselves in entertainment of all kinds, be it sports, physical, fitness, on and on and on, anything, anything, some, something or anything, to ease the voice of conscience, to ease the guilt of the law by becoming what they think is good enough for God to accept me, if there is a God to accept me. Well, this is God's restraining use of the law. Society is not as bad as it could be. Not at all. The law restrains sin, and it does it by conscience, you know. It allows society to exist. But there is the last way for the sinner. I could name more, but the last one I'm going to mention is the law reveals sin and often makes the sinner even worse. The law reveals sin, makes the sinner even worse. Self-righteousness is also a sin. Finding righteousness anywhere except in Christ is not only impossible, it's mocking God's way of salvation. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. There's an old saying, and it comes from verse 5, although I, I don't think that's what verse 5 is actually totally saying. 
But look at it again. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. The old saying that goes back to Adam and Eve is, forbidden fruit is the sweetest. You know, you've heard that before. And it's when men and women give themselves over to sin, it's a downward spiral until God intervenes. And no one knows the depths any particular soul may sink. But it's certain that left unchecked, sin always leads to death. And the answer is verse 6. But now, having been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter, it doesn't come right out and say it like we would like a verse to just say, you know, here's the way of salvation in one verse, boom. There's a lot of verses that talk about the way of salvation. A lot of verses that talk about life and new life. But we need to, to actually realize that um, coming to Christ and believing in him is the only answer. And any other answer that you give, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And it's the fool that goes to hell. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we would just pray that you would work through this chapter. It's a scary chapter, but it's a picture of us. And Lord, I thank you in heaven it won't be a picture of us. These old things will be absolutely gone. But today we battle. Today we sin. Today we do wrong. Even as Christians, this is exactly what we still do. But I thank you, Lord, that we actually do grow in grace and knowledge. I thank you, Lord, that we can see fruit, the fruit that remains. Thank you, Lord, that their motivations have been changed. And now instead of engaging in what we loved, we hate what we once loved and love what we once hated. Father, we were at enmity with God. We hated him. And now we love him. We were in love with our sin and tried to make peace with it any way we could. But now we see it for what it is. It's an enemy. So Lord, help us as we go through this Christian life and the battle that still remains. May Jesus Christ get the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.